Please turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. If you're using the Pew Bible, or which is over here, if you're using the version of the Bible that we have available here, it's on page 478, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Our sermon text today is verses 24 to 26. Because uh, some of you haven't been here recently, I will uh, back up our reading. Uh, Let's start at the beginning of the chapter, but bearing in mind as I read that uh, our, our focus is going to be on verses 24 to 26. And then, following that, we'll turn to the New Testament book, of 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes 2 followed by 1st Thessalonians 4 verses 9 to 12. Let us hear the word of God then. <laughs> Solomon is writing by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been 
extremely wise. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner... He is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon is a man with questions that the New Testament by grace answers for us. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 to 12, we read, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Solomon is now established in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the very same things that you and I have also learned for ourselves through hard experience in the day-to-day -day unfolding of our own lives. That human life is hard and short and uncertain. Even the best of them, even the lives of kings are that way. And then after we're, we're gone, we have absolutely no power, none whatsoever, 
to influence what becomes of our personal legacy. You and I will have no control over what happens to everything that we have spent our lives working to build. Today we may, like Solomon, be in the driver's seat of a booming national economy. You're the chairman of the board. You're the president of the company. But tomorrow, whether literally or figuratively, you're in the back of the hearse. Each one of us is. And when that day comes, in the words of Solomon, who knows whether your lawful heir, the man who will come after you, who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? We simply don't know. We can't know. What you and I have to work with, and it's really a wonderful gift, what you and I have to work with is this tiny little sliver of time and history represented by those hyphenated dates that will appear one day on your tombstone and mine. You had no power to influence what came, what came before you, and you'll be in no position to influence in the least what comes after you. And so this greatest of all Old Testament kings comes to the very sensible conclusion that each one of us needs to make the very best use of his time that we have on earth. In the short passage that we have before us today, God, by the pen of Solomon, urges us to consider the biblical view of one's own vocation. That is, your particular God-given calling in life. We're going to consider this important topic of your vocation under three headings. First is the matter of finding fulfillment in your calling, which is the main burden of verses 24 and 25. Second, and this is really mostly for the benefit of the young people among us, we'll look at the important matter of deciding the direction of our calling. Solomon makes it clear in verse 26 that God has sovereignly assigned a sacred calling for each one of us. We must decide what that is. But he also suggests here that there are boundaries and signposts along life's way marking the lanes in which we ought to be walking. And these lanes correspond to those two ways with which the book of Psalms opens. The way of him whose delight is in the law of the Lord, that is, the way of Jesus Christ, and by contrast, the way of the wicked. Young people who are trying to ascertain their specific calling in life ought first to consider those two ways and the end to which each one of those two ways leads. Our calling is first and foremost not to a job, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Third and finally, we'll look at the vital issue of maintaining the proper perspective in our calling. A realistic perspective on our earthly vocation is implicit in this final statement of verse 26, but it's explicitly stated and enlarged upon elsewhere throughout both Old and New Testament. Because as important as it is to find and follow a life calling that satisfies you, that meets your personal needs and aspirations through life, ultimately, life is much more than food and the body than clothing. If, as we'll discover in chapter 3, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, then it's for that that we labor here below. And not merely for any time-bound goals we might set for ourselves here under the sun. It's for eternity that we're working. Ultimately, we live not for a paycheck, but for God. We live and move and have our being for him who dwells in the inapproachable light of eternity. So that's where we're headed today. First, let this sink in and simmer a while in your thinking. That finding fulfillment in your calling is a gift of God. Finding fulfillment in your calling is a gift of God. That's point number one. Now, it should go without saying, I think, that your calling itself is a gift. This first point goes farther than that. It goes deeper. It's not just the bare fact that you have a calling, that you've gone to school, you've passed the tests, you've gotten the practitioner's license, you have a diploma on your wall. The bare fact that you're a homemaker, or a software developer, or a military officer, or an electrician, or whatever it is you do, that's a magnificent gift in itself. Just how magnificent it is to have a trade can best be understood, I think, when you contrast that with the situation of teaming millions of people in the world today who lack that vocational focus. The millions of people who still haven't figured out what they're going to do with their lives. Who don't yet know what they want to do. People who are indecisive, even idle. Who scrape by on the help and handouts of others. And these include not only young people, but tragically it includes even people who are well along in life. If you have a lawful calling a trade, a craft, a profession that enables you not only to make ends meet, but also to make the world a better place for others, you are blessed indeed. But, as I said, Solomon here is addressing something much deeper than the mere ability to pay your bills. When he says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. It's not about having a job. It's about finding personal fulfillment and satisfaction in it. In this world, here below, there is nothing better for a man 
than that. Now our translation here might be misconstrued as though the man were somehow kidding himself. That he's telling himself something that he knows deep down isn't true. Telling himself that he's doing something important, something worthwhile, something good, while some other little voice in his head is telling him that vocationally he's really no more than a cog in someone else's wheel. But no, let's not read it that way. I don't think it's intended that way. Let's not read this book of Ecclesiastes as though it were simply the product of a cynical old man. Some people do read it that way. But the truth is, the man's labor is good. It is good. It's from the hand of God. God created our first parents and placed them in the garden not to be idle, but to work. And your engagement in a lawful calling today for the glory of God ought to be one of the greatest satisfactions, one of the most fulfilling things you can find to do under the sun. Ought to be. But for many, of course, it's not that. They don't find fulfillment in their work. They don't find it rewarding. They gladly do the eating and drinking part. But if you ask them what they do for a living, they'll often describe themselves essentially as victims. Well, I'm trapped in a dead-end job. Or I'm working for peanuts. Or I'm just doing this in the interim until something better comes along. Dear ones, I encourage you, don't let yourself fall victim to that common vocational pit of despair. And it is common. A sense of fulfillment in your work comes not as an end in itself. More often than not, fulfillment comes as a byproduct of doing whatever seems to be the evident will of God for you at this particular point in your life. It comes as you develop a more thoroughly biblical view of work. And, frankly, it does often include some faithful, persistent, but otherwise pretty unrewarding, slogging through a lean or difficult season. Along life's way, the Christian experiences plenty of just hanging in there. Plenty of those things that build character. Haven't God's saints often served in situations and under conditions that they'd really rather not? From Joseph, the Egyptian prison guard, to um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, never had an easy day, to uh, Paul, the bivocational tent maker. Each one of those men had reasonable grounds to wish his situation were different in some way. And yet each of them was a child of God serving for a season where he was, where his all-wise father had providentially placed him. 
Those are three very good, I think, Old Testament and New Testament examples. But much more than that, didn't our Father in Heaven actually apprentice his own beloved royal son to a Nazareth carpenter For years of his young life, Jesus worked in the carpentry trade, even though his true life's calling lay in a very different direction. Do you ever fret that you're spending these fleeting days and years of your life in a dead-end job, light years removed from your true aspirations, and goals in life, then let me encourage you in the words found later on in this same book of Ecclesiastes, that whatever your hand finds to do, verily, do it with all your might. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Nothing could be clearer from the New Testament than the fact that carpentry was not Jesus' life's work. It's not what he came to do, and yet in the Gospels we hear Jesus utter not one whisper of complaint about it. Might we not even suppose that for as long as he was in that line of work, he gave it his best effort for the glory of God and the good of his father Joseph's carpentry clientele. For in our vocations, just as in every other aspect of life, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So whatever your current work situation may be, dear brothers and sisters, let me assure you, Jesus understands. Jesus understands. From the matter of finding fulfillment in our vocations, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Solomon in verse 26, moves on to that of deciding the direction our lawful callings take us. Because whatever specific professional credentials you carry, those mean far, far less in the final analysis than the end to which you use them. Let's just say you're a waitress. Then, dear sister, be a waitress for the glory and the kingdom of God. And plumbers, police officers, civil magistrates, each one of them serves in that office, that particular office, either for good or for ill serves in that capacity either the glorious kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. There's no middle ground. There is no middle ground in any calling. And I hope you understand that one may even be a church minister, either for good or for evil. Those scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, they represented a considerable segment of the religious establishment, the religious leadership in Judea, yet Christ Jesus 
had no kind words of congratulation for them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he said, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. There are today ministers, so-called ministers, leading their congregations far, far away from Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep leading them far away from the safety of his word. Wolves, Jesus calls them, wolves in sheep's clothing. On their office walls may hang diplomas issued by some of the foremost seminaries of the world. Their names are followed by a long train of academic and ecclesiastic titles. But the end to which their well-credentialed work tends is far from the saving of souls and far from the biblical edification of Christ's church. And if you doubt that a minister could have such diabolical influence on his flock, read again the Apostle Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 28. Be on guard, he says, first for yourselves. That's Paul to the elders of Ephesus. Be on guard first for yourselves. And then for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. My dear young friends, as you make the important decisions that lie ahead of you, let me urge you carefully to think your calling through. Assess your giftedness for it. Assess your motivation in it. Be sure of your lasting interest in it. All these questions and their answers are important as you plan your life ahead of you. But there's none so important as your own personal standing in the sight of God. That's crucial. That's a big question. For to a person who is good in his sight, Solomon says, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's what you'll find. Whether you're a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, that's what you'll find. While to the sinner, he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. Don't be deceived, says the Apostle Paul in another place. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In his final observation of verse 26, Solomon drives home the critical importance of maintaining this proper perspective on your life's calling under the sun. That brief final statement is just this. This too, he says, is vanity and striving after wind. If you are an unconverted sinner today, far from God, then it matters not what you've gathered and collected, 
what you've accumulated in life by means of your work. Time and events are going to separate you from it. Time and events are going to separate you from all you've spent a life collecting. Eventually, we can expect every computer on every office deck, desk to crash. Eventually, every architect's castle lies in ruins. And even we, with our children, will one day lie in the dust of death. And yet, by God's amazing grace, a life lived even here in this disjointed world under the sun can be good. This is a theme you'll find again and again in this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes. Your life, your love, your labor, it can all be redeemed. It can all be restored. It can all be made good to the one upon whom God has set his love in Jesus Christ. To such a man, woman, or child, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Joy. Let us then seek the Lord while he may be found. Let us call upon him while he is near. Let us, as Moses did in the fading light of his own failing days, Beseech the Lord our God to confirm for us the work of our hands. That's what we need to do. Ask God, confirm, establish for us the work of our hands. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of life. The great gift of biological life and health and strength, and these great gifts that you have given us for these few years on earth. We pray, O Lord, that we would use them wisely, that our children, too, in their days and their efforts in life, their life's calling, would learn to bend every effort toward the greater glory of the kingdom of God. We pray, Heavenly Father, with thanks for your faithfulness to your people throughout the ages. Thank you that you have brought us to this day so late in history and that you have been faithful, unchanging, immutable through it all. We praise you and we thank you for your love for your people. We want to express to you a reciprocal love. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would take it, perfect it, refine it, that we might present to you in due time a radiant bride by the work of your Holy Spirit. And humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen.